Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Morning, church. It is good to see you all today. As you know, a another NFL draft has come come and gone, and I once again was not selected. So you're stuck with me for at least another year. So um, before we come to God's word today, I want to uh, take a moment and make sure everybody's kind of in the loop on the fact that I am going on sabbatical this summer. And um, at our all-church family meeting a couple months ago, we announced that this year is my sabbatical year. Our goal as a church is to send each of our pastors on a 100-day sabbatical every seven years. And so last year, we sent Linda, our family pastor, away, and uh, this year is my year. So um, I just want to make sure you know that and know how grateful I am for the opportunity, because I know that most people spend their entire careers, 30, 40, 50 years working hard and usually don't get uh, more than maybe a few weeks vacation. Um, and I'm aware that a 100-day sabbatical is incredibly rare and I don't take it for granted. So I am incredibly grateful for the opportunity. Um, I know that it's a new idea for some folks or an idea that some people struggle with. Um, I've even heard Christians say, the devil never takes a day off, so we shouldn't either. And I'm like, that's great if you want to be like the devil, but I want to be like Jesus, who regularly withdrew from the crowds and went away to be with God. So, um, so I'm not going to be around this summer. Basically, from Memorial Day to Labor Day, I'll be on sabbatical, and uh, I can't tell you how stoked I am, how much I'm looking forward to it. I've been a pastor for 23 years, and uh, I've never had a sabbatical before, so the plan is to spend uh, most of the summer being a full-time husband and dad and spending lots of time with Jen and the kids. Um, if you know anything about um, being a pastor's family, you know how easy it is for them to get the leftovers rather than the good stuff. And so I'm um, looking forward to spending a lot of good time with the family this summer and also looking forward to spending a lot of good time with God. Um, every job requires the exertion of some kind of energy. Some jobs, it's more physical. Others, it's more mental or emotional or psychologically demanding. Pastoring is unique in that it's one of the jobs that requires the exertion of spiritual energy, um, it, <clears throat> which means that it's easy to regularly find yourself feeling spiritually depleted or spent or fatigued. And if you've never experienced that, it's kind of hard to explain. But... Um, the truth is, if I don't pay close attention to my own heart and soul, if I don't set aside regular time to be with God and to draw life from him, um, then I'm not going to be any good to anybody. And so um, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to having my spirit restored this summer. And so as I shared in the family meeting in March, the plan is to spend the first two weeks of my sabbatical on a spiritual pilgrimage. And uh, I'm going to be walking the Camino de Santiago. Um, I'm going to start in Porto, Portugal, and walk about 175 miles up the Portuguese coast 
into Spain and eventually uh, arrive in Santiago de Compostela, which is the resting place of, of James, the disciple of Jesus. So the plan is to walk about 10 to 15 miles a day by myself every day for two weeks. And not as a tourist, um, but as a pilgrim, walking with God in prayer, enjoying his creation, listening for his voice. Uh, maybe shocking, but I'm not a big walker, uh, typically. <laughs> so this is going to be a challenge for me in more ways than one. Um, but I'm pretty stoked. And there's always Uber, if, uh, if needed. So, um, Before I move on, two, two more things I want you to know about this sabbatical. The first is that this sabbatical isn't coming from a place of burnout or me questioning my call to ministry or anything like that at all. Um, this isn't an emergency. I'm not in a bad place and needing to get away. That's been true in the past. I have been there. This isn't that. Uh, I want you to know that. In fact, this is almost the opposite of that. Um, we all know that during COVID, this great resignation also happened in the church. And lots of pastors left their churches, left the ministry, left the faith altogether. And for me... Um, even though the last two years have been incredibly difficult, um, they've actually served to do just the opposite in me. That I've come to a greater sense um, of God's calling upon my life. And not just as a pastor, but as your pastor. My plan is to do this here and be your pastor for the next 30 years. Unless I get drafted in the NFL. But that... Uh, <laughs> That's what I need you to know. This isn't, um, this isn't a crisis. This isn't a burnout. This isn't anything other than <clears throat> I'll be gone for the summer, recharging the batteries, and uh, back in the fall ready to get after it. So uh, the second thing I want you to know is that you're going to be in really good hands while I'm gone. Um, by the grace of God, things are going really well around Antioch these days. Um, our pastors and staff are in the best place that we've ever been as a team. Our numbers are strong. Did you know that as of the week before Easter Sunday, we are now back up to our pre-COVID Sunday attendance, which is pretty cool. Um, giving is strong because of you and your faithful generosity. We just had the best quarter one in Antioch's history, and so our ministry is well-funded at the moment, and uh, last week, if you were here, we installed some amazing new elders, and I am so excited about this team that God has put in place, and so you're going to be in good hands while I'm gone. I'm not worried about that at all, and uh, you don't need to be either, so I'm just kind of hoping there's still a job for me when I get back, but um, so next Sunday will be my last Sunday with you for a little while. And then starting May 15th, between our in-house preaching team and an unbelievable lineup of guest speakers, you're going to have a great summer. So, sound good? All right, cool. Thank you. So, for my last two sermons, before I go, we're going to continue on the book of Revelation, because might as well go out with a bang. So... 
Uh, last week, Sean kicked off Revelation by giving us a really helpful overview of the book as a whole, as well as some insights on how to read Revelation responsibly. And so what I want to do is a little review of that stuff before we move on to this week's text. Uh, so as we learned last week, re- towards the end of the first century, around the year probably 95, 96 AD, an early Christian pastor by the name of John was arrested by the Roman government and uh, as a punishment for illegally preaching the gospel of Jesus, he was banished to a tiny island called Patmos, which is in the Mediterranean Sea between modern day Turkey and Greece. And while John's there on this island, he has this amazing prolonged vision in which Jesus appears to him and basically gives him this sneak peek behind the curtain of the universe. And after this vision, John spends some time pondering and processing what he saw, and then he sits down and he writes out this carefully written letter um, to the early church that communicates um, in really poetic, colorful, apocalyptic language, um, symbolism, imagery, uh, what Jesus has to say to his people. And we call that letter the book of Revelation. Um, Now, because of all the unique layers to Revelation, it's pretty widely considered the most difficult book in the Bible to interpret, which is why a lot of Christians end up just kind of avoiding it or ignoring it altogether, which is a problem. Because if God has given us this book as part of his self-revelation to us, We can't ignore it. We believe that all scripture is God-breathed. We're committed to the entire counsel of God. And so we want to be people who take the Bible seriously, including the book of Revelation. Now, here's the thing. Lots of people think that taking the Bible seriously means reading the Bible literally. But I'm much more interested in reading the Bible literately than literally. To read the Bible literally means to pay attention to the genre of literature that we're reading, to pay attention to who the author is and who the original audience was and when and where and for what purposes it was written and so forth. To say that you take the Bible literally may sound good to some people, um, but if you're going to take the Bible seriously, then you need to learn how to read it literally. In fact, there are huge sections of the Bible that are specifically designed not to be taken literally. Like, that's the point. For example, one-third of the Bible is poetry. That's a fact. And poetry by nature is meant to be read not literally, right? Or, for example, when John says that Jesus is the Lamb of God, we know that that doesn't mean Mary really did have a little lamb, right? So I want you to take the Bible seriously, and that means learning how to read it literally. Uh, Or as Bible scholar John Walton put it, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The point is that for us to understand the meaning of a book like Revelation, we need to do a little work and figure out what we're dealing with here. So so last week, Sean mentioned um, that when it comes to interpreting Revelation, there are a few different approaches that people have taken Um, to interpreting this book. And uh, in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, Michael Gorman lays it out something like this. So you have a vertical axis, 
where a particular interpretation strategy puts its focus on term, in terms of time. So do you think that Revelation is primarily meant to be read about uh, events that have happened in the past or about what's going to happen in the future? Or are we in the middle somewhere asking what Revelation has to say to us as readers in the present. So there's that axis, the past and the future. And then the horizontal line is where the interpretive approach lands on the spectrum between a code and a lens. Code meaning we're looking at the specific symbolic language in Revelation and we're trying to decipher or decode what it means and what it correlates to. We're diving deep into the details of the text, trying to figure out exactly what every little picture and, and animal represents. At the other end of the spectrum is the lens approach. Lens means that rather than trying to decode all the specific details, we're looking for the spirit of the text. We're looking for patterns and themes and principles which may or may not be connected to some specific future or past historical event, but they also give us a thorough lens through which we can interpret the world around us. And so every approach to reading or interpreting Revelation falls somewhere on this graph on both of these spectrums. Uh, whether you're a serious Bible scholar or just a casual Bible reader, you're gonna land somewhere on this graph. And so as Sean mentioned last week, um, let me show you the five main ways that people read the book of Revelation. We'll start in the bottom left, you have the predictive approach which is probably the most familiar to many of us and the most common. It sees Revelation as containing heavily coded language, um, heavily coded messages about the future, most often focusing on what we call eschatology or the end times. And so this view sort of sees Revelation as a crystal ball, that when we look into it, we can find hidden clues about the future. So that's the predictive approach. Then we have the preterist view in the upper left corner. Preterist means in the past. And so in this view, most of the events described in Revelation actually already happened soon after it was written in the first century. And so this view sees Revelation kind of as a treasure map that we can look to and it contains sort of secret messages about the ancient world that may be of value to us. So that's the preterist view. Then we move around to the upper right. This is the political view, um, which also thinks Re Revelation primarily deals with the past, but it also wants the message to give us some patterns and categories categories for how we understand the world. And so it kind of sees Revelation as a protest song, if you will. Kind of like the anti-war songs that came out in the 60s. They were protesting a specific event, the Vietnam War, but their message um, contains some timeless elements and themes that are relevant to all kinds of other situations. So that's the political view. Uh, then we have the pastoral lens in the bottom right. This is the view that sees Revelation as a love letter um, from a pastor to his people, encouraging them in difficult times, encouraging them to remain faithful to Jesus in the face of persecution and suffering. And so we know that the early readers of this letter were going through some hard times and there was even worse to come. And so this is kind of the view that Pastor John is writing a pastoral epistle to inspire them with a vision of Jesus as the triumphant king. And then finally, kind of somewhere in the middle, we have the poetic view. 
um, which really sees Revelation kind of like an art house film, if you will, um, which is a beautiful but pretty weird movie. Um, and it's intended to be a serious work of art rather than draw a huge crowd. And so in this view, Revelation is treated more like a work of poetry, which is meant to be felt rather than analyzed. So those are five ways of trying to make sense of Revelation. Uh, The question is, which one's right? Um, Well, let me say two things. First, there's a lot of overlap. These categories aren't all mutually exclusive. And um, as we kind of move forward, we're going to see that. And the second thing I want to say is that there are faithful, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians who land in each one of these categories, okay? And so you don't have to agree with me. That's fine. You can be wrong, but we can (laughs) land in different places. So... I'm personally fairly convinced that Revelation isn't primarily meant to be approached as a code to be cracked, but more as a lens through which we can see the world in a new way. And so as we study the book, we're going to be on this side over here over the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at Revelation as a protest song against an empire of violence as a poetic art house film that's full of colorful, mythical, theological imagery, and as a pastoral epistle, a a love letter written to encourage followers of Jesus who are facing persecution and suffering. So that's my best stab at how we're going to approach Revelation. Is there a chance that I'm wrong? You bet. Um, Even Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said, Only fools and madmen are positive in their interpretation of the apocalypse. So uh, I think he's right, so we'll just do our best. This morning, we are in Revelation chapter 5, looking at just four verses from 11 through 14. So in verse 11, John, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousand upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures, and the elders. So, John is writing to early Christians, and he's describing this vision that he had. And he tells them that in his vision, there were a countless number of angels circled around the throne of God. And like the most majestic choir that's ever been assembled, these millions and millions of angelic voices are singing together as one. But it's not just angels that were singing. In verse 13, he says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. So he sees all these angelic beings up in the heavens, but then he sees every creature on land, in the sky, and in the sea. And they're all singing too. So it's an amazing vision. If you can try to wrap your mind around what that would sound like or what that would look like. It's like, I don't know, a scene out of The Lion King or The Little Mermaid where all the animals are singing their part of the song, but it's like cranked up to 11. John's trying to describe this vision, what it sounds like, what it looks like for the whole universe, every living creature in heaven and on earth to be gathered together in perfect unity and singing together in beautiful harmony. And the idea is this is better and more beautiful than anything we can imagine. 
But it's not just that all these angels and these creatures are singing for fun. They're actually singing about something in particular, or even they're singing to someone in particular. Who is it that's sitting on the throne at the center of the universe? Who is it that every living thing in heaven and on earth is gathered around and singing to? That might seem like an obvious answer to us, but to the original readers, this isn't who they would have been expecting. Because this whole thing is pretty otherworldly to us, but this is actually the kind of scene that would have been pretty normal under life in the Roman Empire. You have these great Roman emperors or these Caesars who would sit on their throne and their subjects gathered around them by multitudes and would sing things literally like, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. These are songs that would be sung to the Caesars. This was life in the empire. And so as John is describing this vision in the letter, his Christian readers know that in the end, it's not Caesar that's Lord, but Jesus who is Lord. And so as they listen to him describing this epic vision in the great throne room of heaven, they're waiting for him to announce that on the throne of God is King Jesus, sitting on the throne with a crown on his head and a scepter in his hand, the former carpenter from Nazareth that overcame the odds and now is finally and rightly appointed king of the universe, surrounded by glory. That's what they would have been expecting. But when John looks on the throne, he doesn't see a powerful, victorious, heroic, conquering king. Who is it that the angels of heaven and the creatures of earth are singing to? In verse 12, in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So interesting. Instead of a great and powerful king, sitting on the throne is a lamb who was slain. A little baby sheep that had been slaughtered. So in John's vision, he sees millions of angels along with every creature in heaven and on earth, gathered around the throne of God, worshiping a slain lamb. From this point forward in the book of Revelation, this is the primary picture and name that John will use for Jesus, the lamb who was slain. And so we now have this lens, this way of seeing Jesus, as we read through the rest of the book of Revelation. So in John's vision, the world isn't run by powerful politicians or by egocentric dictators or by eclectic billionaires or by some secret society of elites. In John's vision, the world is run by a slaughtered lamb. Who would want a slaughtered lamb as the symbol for your kingdom. I mean, think about 
the mascots of our high schools just here in Bend, right? We have the lava bears, we have the cougars, we have the storm, we have the wolf pack, all these powerful, fierce, intimidating forces that you wouldn't mess with. Nobody would choose for their football team to be called the slain lambs, right? The dead baby sheep. But here in John's vision, at the center of the universe, on the throne of God, is the Lamb of God who was slain. What does this mean? Listen carefully. This this is important. What this means is that the cross, the way of the slaughtered lamb, isn't just one of many things that happened to Jesus. But rather, it's the central way that God reveals himself to us and the central way that we are to understand what it means to live as those who worship him. Bible scholar Richard Bauckham puts it like this. When the slaughtered lamb is seen in the midst of the divine throne of heaven, the meaning is that Christ's sacrificial death belongs to the way God rules the world. The symbol of the lamb is no less a divine symbol than the symbol of the one who sits on the throne. In his exaltation, Jesus remains the lamb, the crucified one. This is the consistent witness of the New Testament that the exalted Lord remains the crucified Jesus and this is the true face of God. So in other words, when you picture God, John doesn't want you to imagine this. He wants you to imagine this. The exalted Lord remains the crucified Jesus, and this is the true face of God. So here's the lens that we're given by this text that at the center of the universe isn't a force of wealth and power and violence and conquest, but at the center of the universe is self-sacrificing, co-suffering love. The king of the world is a lamb who was slain. So, if that's who God is, then how should we, as the people of God, live? The implications of this are vast, but I want to give you two really quick ones to chew on. First, learn to embrace that which keeps you humble. We spend most of our lives trying to hide our flaws and mistakes and sins and deficiencies because those things are liabilities in the empire. But if the king of the world is a lamb who was slain, then it's not power we're after, it's humility. So learn to embrace that which keeps you humble. And secondly, if a slain lamb sits on the throne of God, then listen to the voices of those on the margins. Maybe it's not the wealthy, successful, educated, and accomplished that we should be seeking out for wisdom and insight. Maybe it's those who are often overlooked, ignored, and oppressed that actually have something to teach us about what life in the kingdom of God is like. 
So listen to the voices of those on the margins. Okay, back to John's vision. We'll end with this. What do you do when you come face to face with the slain lamb who sits on the throne? What happens when you encounter the presence of that kind of love? What do you do? Well, what did they do in the vision? What you do is you worship the lamb. You find your place in the choir of angels. You join your voice to the song of creation. You sing along with the eagles and the dolphins and the elephants and the hummingbirds and the turkey vultures and the manta rays, and you worship the God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is why every Sunday when we gather, we spend half of our time singing together. When we worship God in song, we're not only joining with the song of all of creation, but we're actually participating in the vision of revelation. We're not just reading the story, we're living into it. We become among those who John sees in his vision. That's crazy stuff. This is what happens when we worship God by singing. Because what are we doing when we sing? Is Buddy the Elf right that singing is just like talking except louder and longer? <laughs> well, kinda, but there's something else going on when we sing. Something is happening. Singing isn't just about explaining, it's about expressing. It's one of the ways that we engage our hearts and our bodies, not just our minds in relationship with God. Peterson says that song is more than words, and there are no words to convey what that more is precisely. And so biblically formed people do a lot of singing as they worship. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, not theological or Hebrew and Greek word studies, provide the primary language for embracing and savoring what God does and who God is. So if our vision of God doesn't make us want to break out in song from time to time, then we're not seeing the real Jesus. Look at the cross. Look at the lamb who was slain and you'll see who God really is. So to who, him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And with those four living creatures, all God's people said, Amen. 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 Amy's going to come and lead us to the table.